So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Rob Torrent, here by my ever-wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing good. Happy day. Yes. We got a fabulous show for you today. We are joined here by number one New York Times bestselling author, international bestselling author, none other than Laurel K. Hamilton is going to be joining us to talk about her latest book, which is the next in her Alina Blake series called Sucker Punch. We want to remind everybody, too, that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, so visit suspensemagazine.com for more information on what we got going on, because we got a lot of stuff going on, especially Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, which is an anthology that we have going on with Jeffrey Deaver, along with Reese Bowen, Linwood Barkley, Heather Graham, John Lasquois, and many others, so you can check that out. It's available for pre-order now. It comes out November 17th. But without any further ado... We want to bring on a guest that we've had on a couple of years ago. I talked to Laurel when I was sitting in the parking lot of the Forum getting ready for the Hall and Oates <laughs> concert I went into. So, Laurel, thanks so much for coming on. How you doing? Don't know if you remember that, but, yeah. I, I actually do uh, remember that because I think you're the first person, maybe the only person so far that said that they were sitting in the car waiting for, you know, the Hall and Oates concert. It's just, it, it has stayed in my mind. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, it was a great concert, too, by the way. It was great. It was a great oh, show. Cool. Um, so that was, that was good. That was fun. And, uh, and it was the first time we ever were in the forum. I'd never been in the forum before, so that was fun, too. But we want to get to your latest book. It's called Sucker Punch. It's the latest in your Nia Blake series. Um, and you did something a little different in this series, which I want to get into a little bit. But tell us a little bit about what you got going on. You mean tell me tell you about a little bit about what you got going on in the book? Yeah, with this one. Okay. Uh, otherwise, with with a more vague entry, you could you never know what you'll get out of me. So I'll I'll, I'll stick to the book for now. Um, <laughs> Sucker Punch uh, is a a big is a departure for Anita. She is on her own as a U.S. Marshal. She's been called in to consult on a uh, murder case by another marshal in the Preternatural Service. And because, and, and this starts in the first chapter, so I'm not giving anything away. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, for those who, who haven't read my series, it is a world where vampires and shapeshifters are legal citizens, but they've been deemed too dangerous to be put in jail or even go on trial. Once they kill somebody, the killing usually doesn't stop. So you have warrants of execution, and a preternatural uh, branch marshal comes in and kills them, executes them on the spot, and you're done. But one of the uh, newer marshals thinks that somebody is using this system to try to get away with murder and frame a shapeshifter for the murder. He just... He just wants a more experienced marshal to come in and double-check him. And so Anita does. And she, for the first time, she comes in, and not only do you know who done it, but he's in a jail cell. And shapeshifters don't usually get that far because they can break out of anything. Anything uh, that a local, especially a local small uh, department would have. But... Uh, the person that they have uh, in custody is being, either he killed his uh, uncle who raised him or he's being framed for it. So he's devastated, as we all would be if you wake up covered in blood and being told you killed somebody you loved. And so he's not trying to get away. He's, he's almost suicidal. And it is trying to figure out, did he do it? 
and if he didn't, who did it, and how was it done, and the marshal service, are they being used as a weapon of murder rather than of justice? Mm-hmm. And, and Anita uh, does more police work, like right. traditional police work, than maybe ever because that's what I was going to get into later. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that she did a little bit different on this one. A lot of police procedural on this one. Yeah, and and Anita says on stage more than once. She says she she doesn't like she opens a drawer when they're searching uh, one of the houses and she sees a weapon and she starts to reach in and then she stops herself and she says, "If I move it, will the chain of custody the." It, will it be ruined is, a, is part of the chain of custody for clues. Will it not be able to be used in court? And she actually has to ask one of the other police officers that was a police officer before he became a uh, U.S. Marshal in the Natural Service. She says, our, our warrant only says what, does it cover drawers or only what's out in sight? I don't usually do this part, and I don't want to mess it up. And we get to ask, well, what's okay to do and what's not okay to do? And it's, it was really fun to realize just how much latitude uh, the preternatural branch marshals, uh, the vampire executioners have, and how, how little real police work gives you, how strict most uh, warrants, uh, search, search warrants are. It was, it was fun to have Anita have to go through like more like a regular cop for that. Um, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I'm curious, why did you want to set this novel in uh, Michigan, in that area? What appealed to you about uh, that? I first went to that area of Michigan when I was in college and fell in love with it. Uh, uh, Beautiful. Not, it, it really is. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen the Great Lakes. Um, and I didn't know, when they said the Great Lakes, I still thought a lake. I didn't realize that really it's an inland sea. It just happens to be fresh water. Right. Uh, and so it was also the first time that I was in, in a body of water on a boat big enough that I couldn't see the shore. Uh, I still and, uh, went out on the Manitoba Island. Um, I was uh, at uh, the uh, Sobel Institute of Environmental Studies uh, on one of their summer programs. Um, I have a degree. Okay, I have a degree in biology. I, mm-hmm. Not everybody knows that. And uh, I used to say just that that I had the degree. And then I've had several biologists say, "Say you're a biologist. You have the degree, right?" Well, yes. I said that I've never made my living as a bio with, with my bio- biology degree. So I'm not really a biologist. She says a lot of us haven't made our living from <laughs> our biology degree. And you know, that's fair. That's it's true. Fair. Yeah. Uh, very true. Uh, so I There's millions of people who are very happy that you did not become a biologist. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> well, I, interestingly <laughs> enough, it was my junior year of uh, college. No, senior year of college. Mm-hmm. Senior year of college that um, I started getting allergies, severe adult-onset allergies, so that I went from being allergic to almost nothing as far as animals and plants go, to being allergic to pretty much the planet. So my idea of going out and being a wildlife biologist and living out in the field was 
kaput. There was no way. And, and when people say allergies, most people think, oh, you get the sniffles. No, 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 no. No. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking anaphylactic shock from being in a contained environment with a cat. Yeah. I mean, it, wow. it was severe. So I had allergy um, shots from when I was three to when I was like 14. I had to give them every week, every week. And did it work? Me it too. did to a point, yeah. It was, I was mainly the mold and the spawn and the spores, and I had a little bit of food allergy, but then I kind of, kind of got out of that, which was good. I kind of grew out of it. Um, most, I, I did research on it after I, I got it, and most children will grow out of their allergies. Yes. They, they have the greatest chance of growing. If you get an allergy as an adult, a young adult, you could still grow out of it, 20-something is a little late, but if you get anything over, like, in your 40s or 50s, you're done. You're, you're never getting rid of it. Adult-onset allergies are more persistent than children's allergies. Kind of like the um, celiac that people are getting when they get older with the gluten all of a sudden. Yeah, I think so. And, yeah. um, uh, but uh, it's, it's, so, so I might have gone into the biology and done my master's and gone on, except that I became allergic to everything. And um, my least favorite part of my degree was the uh, lab work. I wanted to be a field researcher. I wanted to be out there with the animals and the the plants and out in the outdoors. And that became impossible. So um, that I, writing was always my first love, but um, uh, I, but biology was a close second. It was always kind of a race. And, but I got kicked out of the writing program at my college. And so that's why I finished up my English degree with mostly English lit. And I uh, got my biology degree, and I got both of them in four years because I, I was going to be out of money in four years. So I, uh, so I went to the head of both programs, and I said, okay, here's what I'm doing, and here's what I need. And um, and then I got allergic, and so the biology degree was kind of moot. Uh, I, you know, I guess uh, I guess uh, the universe wanted me to be a writer, and was going, "What is with this biology thing again? We're going to have to fix that." And boy, did they! Wow. Uh, but yeah, my, I, my wife is uh, my wife got her degree in biology as well. So, but she actually practices it. <laughs> but, but yeah, but she, she she studies viruses now. So, yeah. uh, and you can guess this time of year um, and what's going on. She's very busy. <laughs> I bet she is. Um, I I have a friend whose uh, advanced degree is in emergency uh, emergency management systems, like in that area. So yeah, yeah, it's it's certain. If I had gone ahead and got my degree, though, I would not definitely have not done that. I, I was looking more on um, studying for birds or large uh, large carnivores. Um, I, I've always been, other than insects, so I did think of, uh, of entomology, but uh, I've always liked anything very big and carnivorous. That's that's really what I wanted to study. If it, if, it, if it could attack me and eat me, I was interested. Hers was salamanders. So, yeah, I got you. Well, salam- <laughs> salamanders are really cool. Uh, the, yeah. in, in this area, I haven't seen one in a while, but the hellbender 
the hellbender, one of the, the largest salamander in North America, is native to our area. And um, they are, I love the name, hellbender. What a great name. And it's like as long as my arm. It's, it's so, like so they're fantastic. like in the Ozarks, like in Ozark, Missouri yeah. area? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, yeah. Well, all right. I would have to drive a little bit to get there. Right, but uh, close enough, closer than I am. It's not my very, area. Very, very <laughs> true. Very true. Um, and you just, I, 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 even before I knew I was ever going to live in an area with one, I, I just always loved the name, that their real name is, they're called Hellbenders. How cool is that? That is cool. Oh, that's, that's so neat. <laughs> so when you were... So when you were doing, so when you were writing all this police procedural too and all this other thing, how much does, did you learn on your own just that you didn't really know about? Actually, actually not much. Okay. Um, before I knew what I was doing with Anita, I've always been, uh, I, I wanted to, when I started writing Anita, I didn't, I thought, I knew it was going to be a mystery series, but I didn't know that she was going to lean so heavily towards like, uh, the p- more police side of things, I thought that we were going to be more like a, a cozy mystery except with zombies. But it totally went the other way. And so then I started researching real police work and talking to and interviewing real police officers. And I was lucky enough to have, uh, you know, my best friend is now retired after 20 years. And um, I, I talked to them about all sorts of things because I didn't know where we were going to go at that point, uh, she was a vampire executioner, but warrants of execution, per se, the system hadn't evolved to that point in the series. So I, I didn't know we weren't going to be doing more of this. So I researched it. I always over-research. Over-researching is always better than under-researching, especially, oh, my God, if you are doing something that real people do and everybody yeah, you does something. get it right. <laughs> Because if you don't, you will hear about it. Yep. And not only that, if you're reading along and you have an expertise in guns or if you're a cop or if you're, uh, you know, if you studied wolves for real as a biologist, whatever your specialty is, if you're reading one of my books and you catch me wrong on a fact, then it's going to really hurt your suspension of disbelief. If I can't get the real world facts, then are you, you're not going to believe my zombies and my werewolves and my vampires. So I try to make the reality as real as possible with some exceptions. I do not use real places anymore. I'll move them close to places. I'll use real roads. But I try to keep the actual locations very vague. And um, the reason I do that is because in the early books, I didn't. And about the first three books, I... I First two books, by the third book, I was moving things around, um, and people started trying to find the houses, and they went up and knocked on people's doors that had nothing to do with my book, oh my trying God. to find the vampires, and I, I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to play this oh game. Oh, so, gosh. Wow. Um, in the early books, I have an underwater cave scene. And I did go caving. I did do splunking for the research. Now, I will admit free, I did not do the cave diving. I did not try to do cave diving. Um, I, I do have my, my certificate in diving. I do have my advanced certificate in diving. 
but um, uh, cave diving yeah, cave diving is one of the most dangerous things you can do, just period. So in the yeah. scene, though, Anita's not diving. She's trying to escape the monsters, and she goes in an underwater tunnel in the cave and, and decides she'd rather drown than have them get her. And so it's a very scary scene. It's, it's claustrophobic. It's fear of water, fear of darkness, fear of it. I mean, it's just, it's just, right. uh, and you're being chased by half snake in things. So it's just, it's just like a <laughs> psychotherapy nightmare. And yet, and yet I had people when I went, had the signing for that book, I had people come up and at the signing and were angry with me because the, the cage is not where you said it was. I said, how do you know that? Because oh, we looked for it. I said, I said, what would you have done if you'd found it? Well, we'd have gone in. I said, what would you have done if you'd gone in? Well, we'd have tried to do what Anita did. I said, you do understand that Anita almost died doing this. She almost drowned. And they went, but, but, and I said, and that is why I moved the cave. It is not. I put it in an area that I researched it, and there are no caves in that area. <laughs> Nothing there. <laughs> Nothing there. You can't find anything. And let me just say that there are a lot of cave systems under St. Louis. There's actually yeah. quite a few of them. Uh, one of the reasons that we became a uh, beer capital for uh, the companies that we did is that uh, the caves under the breweries were perfect temperatures for some of the beers to set in. So there's extensive oh. cave systems under St. Louis. So I had to really actually hunt to make sure there wasn't a surprise cave there. Um, but so I, so I get everything right, but I do move things around so that people can't inadvertently hurt themselves trying to imitate shit. And sorry yeah, really? about that. I'll try not to cuss. Oh, you um, don't, no, you, no, no, you don't have to worry about that. Go for it. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, yay. You should be careful what you tell me. Um, Hell yeah. Cuff that shit out. It, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> do, do you want me to do, do you want me to digress to another store to, to an, to an aside? Or do you want me Laurel, to I want you to be Laurel, whatever you got to do. Oh, that, that. Okay. So we, we did a trip to Ireland for research for Crimson Death. Uh-huh. And then we did a, <coughs> a convention in England. It was the first English convention I'd ever done in. Was uh, it Harrogate or Crime Fest or. It was, a, it was a science fiction convention. Oh, okay. Um, that one I don't know. Okay. It, nice. was, it was a science fiction convention, actually. And, um, and it was very interesting how I didn't think it would be that different from an American. Uh, American. I've been to a lot of American science fiction conventions, but it was different in this way. And this has been a few years ago. This has been like three or four years ago now. Um, they, we all got together, and the person who was in charge, going to be on the panel, the, the head of the panel, the you know, moderator, gave me a list of things, gave us all a list of things we couldn't talk about because it might be triggering for people oh. if they'd had trauma. Well, the list included sex, uh, violence. I mean, I looked at the list and I said, do you, do you read my books? I was going to say, do you read your books? <laughs> Taking everything off. What am I supposed to talk about? I didn't. I, I didn't I, do murder. She baked shit. Thank you. Thank you. I said. I said. I said. I can't talk about anything. By the time I got to the list, I said, "Look, I literally. This is. I can't talk about anything. I can't talk about crime because that's violent. I can't talk about. You know, it's like. It's like. What do you want me to do? And they said, "And don't curse. Don't cuss." And uh, then they, they gave me uh, several yeah. other lists. They gave us all lists of things. And 
after the moderator walked away, I turned to some of the other writers who we'd been talking to, and they, some of them did read my books, and I said, you know what I write. What am I supposed to say up here? And they looked at me and said, I don't know. And several of them said, I don't know how to talk about mine either, because it, it was a horror, paranormal. So some of the stuff was pretty, pretty heavy stuff and scary stuff. And it's like, what do we do? Well, we come up, we're, we're, we're on, there we are, full packed room, it's great. And we're supposed to introduce ourselves. Everybody else behaves. They get to me, and I go, I introduce myself, I tell you, and I said, motherfucking son of a bitch, because you told me I couldn't say it. Oh! Nice. And that freed everybody else up on the panel to be themselves. Nice. <laughs> I mean, it's like when you invite them, like, you're inviting them because you want them to be who they are. That's what we want. I don't want you to be somebody else that you're not. That's, that's, not, that's not getting to know you and your character and your books and what you are. I don't, so I don't understand that. But. I, I had no idea. It was the weirdest thing. And mm. I don't know if it was just this convention or if it's, it's a cultural difference, um, but it was, it was a very interesting – I mean, it was a great panel, good questions once they got over the shock of, of the American. Um, but uh, – uh, and the other thing, we had come from Ireland, so we, we planned ahead so that we got to go into Newgrange. We got to go into Newgrange inside it, and you have to make Ooh. special plans for a tour inside Newgrange. It is one of the uh, oldest uh, intact Neolithic, uh, it's not a tomb, it is a, if you go in, you can see solstice lights come in, and it, it, it's a place of worship, a place of sanctuary, it was a religious icon. They're still debating on everything that it was. The energy is right. amazing. And if you know anything about Ireland, that roof has never leaked a day. And the guide said, even my, I can't even get my roof not to leak in Ireland um, because it rains every day in Ireland. Yeah. It, my hand, it rains every day, at I least mean, this- a little this place is over 5,300 years old. Yes, and it's never leaked. Wow. Uh, and, and so I can't get my damn key out of my car ignition, and they can build something 5,000 years ago that doesn't leak. What the hell? <laughs> right? Right? I know. I know. So, so we're up there, and, and we're up on the panel, and one of the guys is an archaeologist. He, he does fiction, but he's got his degree and what he was before he became a writer and got and everything, uh, and was making enough money to not be an archaeologist, was an archaeologist. And one of the guys actually lives in Egypt, and he can see the Great Pyramids from his bedroom window. I mean, so we're talking about antiquities, and one of the questions yeah. was about that. And they were talking about Egypt a, a great deal, because they had background in it. And um, I said, oh, and you have some place uh, near you that's even older than the pyramids that you can go inside and, and see if you make sense. And they said, where? And I said, Newgrange in Ireland. And when I said that Ireland had someplace older than the pyramids, yeah. the whole room went quiet. You could have heard crickets. Ooh. Before I went to Ireland, I, I, I loved England. I loved Ireland. I did not understand that there is still a great deal of prejudice. Friction, little friction there. 
for the English to the Irish. I did not realize yeah. how much there still was. With, they had it's it's a it's a it's a hop and a skip to see Newgrange, and they didn't know that it was older than the pyramids. I, I have an archaeologist sitting next to me, and he didn't know it was older. He didn't know the age of Newgrange. I, I, I was shocked. I didn't know until I literally just looked up when you talked about it and saw it was built in 3200 BC. And I'm I know, like, right? Holy Toledo. Yeah. And wow. and let me just say that if you can go to the Hill of Tara, one, be prepared to be disappointed in one way, and that is the fact that they have done very little special to, to take care of the Hill of Tara. Mm. If, if we had something like that in this country, it would be a tourist attraction. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a tourist attraction, but there's only a tiny gift shop, and then you walk out and there's like fencing around it, and there are sheep. The sheep get to graze on it. I mean, it's it's so casual, <laughs> and um, uh, but there's the stone in the middle, the king stone that that supposedly at some point, that if you touched it and it cried out, you'd be king of Ireland. And uh, I'm sorry if you don't touch that stone and be a little disappointed, it doesn't cry out. Then you are not a friend of mine. Because <laughs> <laughs> because you have to, especially exactly. especially if you. You have to just touch it and go, ah, oh, dang it. Um, but uh, it's got to try. Ama- amazing energy. Amazing energy there. It felt awesome. so good. Ireland, Ireland was one of the most alive energetically of any countries I've ever been to. And um, it was just incredible. Uh, I, I, I over-researched it. I did not use half of what I learned in Crimson Death. And, uh, I mean, I came back with a stack of research books taller than me. And that doesn't yes, mean that I it won't that show up be... in novels coming up, though. You might still be able to use all that stuff. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, yeah. and it was very hard not to think of Mary everywhere I went. Oh. It, because it's so, it's, it's, it's so that kind of energy. But yeah. um, in Mary's world, if I was Ireland and she asked to come visit, I would say no. Because everywhere she goes, the old magic comes alive again. And Ireland's already pretty hopping with the energy. I can't imagine them wanting more. Um, but, but yes, I, I will use the research in other books. But, but it was just, it, it was very interesting. Um, very interesting to come straightly from Ireland to England and everything. And just an amazing trip. And I do, I have so many ideas, so many notes and everything that, I will use it again, and cool. I just nice. I can't take Anita out of town every book, though. Right. I mean, right. You, you know, we gotta we gotta stay home, and eventually we have to do that whole wedding thing for her. Yes, I, I think that was I'm one really, of my wife's questions. So you're still I'm really, debating that one, huh? No, I'm just dreading writing it. <laughs> So you're just so you're delaying it in the book, like I don't want to write. Okay, let's do the next book. We're dealing. No, no, that is not it. What I mean is, she has to see her family on stage first. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. She has to see her family on stage first because they're devout Catholics, and we do say in Sucker Punch, she says she says on stage in Sucker Punch that her father is refusing to walk her down the aisle because yeah. she's marrying a vampire, and according to the Catholic Church, he is. He is he is an unrepentant sinner, so he's he's at least damned, but they see him as a type of demonic entity. So if she marries him, she's going to be doubly damned. So her, her father won't walk her down the aisle. Her family is sees this is incredibly bad. So we have to have a book where we deal with her family 
which that's the part I'm dreading. Okay, yeah, I, I understand. You've got to set it up. you got to get it set up. Because I don't yeah. want to have Anita's wedding, Anita and Jean-Claude's wedding after all the buildup. I don't want it ruined by having her fa- dealing with the family on the same book. Right. This shit's got to be Luke and Laura. You know, right? don't, don't start with me. I loved it, too, and I watched it at the time. But I was like, I was like a teenager. I was like, so was I. So, you know, but, but, but in retrospect, the longer you think about it, mm-hmm. at one point, Luke raped her. And then later in That's the right. soap opera, yeah. she falls in love and marries him. This is right. not the message I want to send to young girls. No, but you got it. But but the wedding itself was epic. And uh, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Fifty million I people was, watching this thing. Even I though I like Frisco better, I thought Frisco was a better person. I like Frisco. You know, I like Frisco and Felicia better than Luke and Laura. But you know, that was me. Well, you're you talking know, general hospital people. Come on. <laughs> hey, baby, we, we are, talk it all on this show with Laurel. Yeah, I was going to say. We leave no stone unturned. I have no I idea would, anything about General Hospital, Cassidyne's Ice Princes. I know nothing about that. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, my grandmother watched it, so I grew up watching it. And yep. uh, I was in the dorms during the wedding. I was in the dorms watching with friends in the dorms. And when, when the surprise happens, the wedding, and, and the, ba- you know, the, 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 you could hear the girls screaming on all the floors. It was, it was incredible. It was, it was amazing. I, was, I literally hurt my back, and I, was, and I was bedridden for six weeks, and that's when I started watching it. And then, like, ten years later, I just kept watching it. I just I couldn't stop. You know, soap operas, soap operas are addictive for a reason. They were... They, they were, can. Yeah, they can be. Um, before the Internet, everybody watched together, so you could have that, yeah. that experience. Now, with everybody being able to watch when they want, you, you, you've lost something. You've lost a cultural experience that you can share. Right. And you, you, you know you're doing it at the same time. Uh, Game I of Thrones Game kind of was close to that, though. Oh, don't go there. I'm just saying, no, no, no. Just, I'm not saying the show, just in the way that it was a culture thing, because everyone could watch it at the same time Sunday night and then just start reacting to yeah. it. Yeah. More long, instead and, of everybody binging and, it at different times. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, and loved it, loved it, loved it. And, and we will, shall not talk about the point when we stop loving it. Um, <laughs> we won't talk about the Starbucks cup and the other things when it kind of ran off the rails. So, yeah. 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 And, um, uh, and, and that's a shame because, because, you know, we were all there. We were actually planning. We actually watched, uh, you know, watched the, the epic battle uh, at Winterfell with friends. And, and uh, one of the group, one of the group's husbands wasn't a, wasn't a fan, didn't like the show. So he's upstairs on his computer, and the rest of us are down. And at at, at one point, we all screamed together. It was like, ah! and he came running down, thinking something was wrong. <laughs> and so yes, it, 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 yes, I was right there until well, the same place that everybody went. What what the heck? Yeah. Um, but it is. It was. That is the closest. That and all the Marvel movies, uh, all the Avenger movies. That that is a cultural phenomenon that we've all shared. And well, I kind I, uh, of Laurel, I have to ask that. you here. Um, I interviewed you for uh, your Star Trek book, for my Star Trek book, 
And I have to ask, have you been watching the new Star Trek on uh, streaming? Um, I watched Picard, but I have not had a chance to watch... um, Well, is it on or is it just in previews, the uh, newest one that's that's going to be coming out? Well, Discovery's had a couple seasons, um, and there's an animated one. I tried to see. I tried to watch Discovery. It didn't quite work for me. Um, I don't. I know they were trying to do something different with the Vulcans and everything, but I just it just didn't quite work for me. But that's just me. I love Star Trek. I love the universe. I love. I love the idea of you know it is going to get better, which is one of the main messages of Star Trek. Um, I. But no. I watched Picard, and it was wonderful to see Picard again. Uh, it was wonderful to see uh, Patrick uh, Stewart as uh, play Picard again. And, and it was wonderful. I won't, I'll try not to give it away. It was wonderful to see. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to give it away. It was wonderful to see some of the, some of the older ca- other cast come back. And, yes, I agree. Yep. Um, and uh, so, so, yes, really, really enjoyed that. Um, and and it was. I don't want to give anything away because, like we just finished saying, not everybody's seen it. If you haven't seen it, right. then I, I encourage you to go watch it um, because it was it was very touching, very poignant. It it had some really good moments. Had some moments that that I was sitting there going, wait a minute, but in the end, it was all worth it and played out well. Nice. Um, you I felt have to say, like season it, two discovery. I think you'll like. I didn't like season one at all, but season two I liked. Well, because it ties back to the it, original. I will give another. Do you know? Have you seen? Um, oh, I have just blanked. It is a parody of Star Trek. It is Orville. Um, yeah. yeah. Have you Orville. seen the Orville? I love it. Yeah, Jeff love loves it. Orville. I love the Orville. Um, yeah, you have it. to go through about three. You have to get to episode three. Yes. To really sink in, start start with episode three and then go back is what I would say to people. And because the that's Orville how I got my family said, hooked on it. The or the Orville said things that 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 were it, it, because it's humor. They were able to say things and be braver on their topics than than straight mainstream Star Trek. You can get away yep. with humor with things you can't do in straight dramas. Right. Um, just like with horror, you can get away with more in horror than you can with a straight mystery. True, because horror has no rules. Horror, you can do whatever you want. I mean, there's really no rules in a horror book. You can kind of have fun with eh. it. Eh. Kind of, I mean, uh, it depends. Now, hold on, but it depends if you're talking gore or you're talking horror, because there's two separate things in my mind. Like, horror for me is Halloween, but gore is something totally different, like Rob Zombie's Halloween. That was more okay. gore to me. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't really care for uh, the grotesqueries is what I call them, where it's just played for shock and horror. I, I just, I, I, I don't think that's horror. I think that's, that's, that's grotesquery. That's, that's just right. violence for the sake of violence. I, right, and that I do that. not like. Uh, nor I. Um, but, but yes, there are rules. Though, if you go for traditional things like Halloween, the, rule, Halloween. the one rule, 
those first Helen, but the first, but even that, a lot of the a lot of the those that came after, the one rule it is the virgin doesn't got doesn't die, and the moment you have right. sex, the moment you get sexy, you're dead. Dead. That's it. Game over. That that is one of the rules, and. Yeah. Um, so actually, say, so your books, you'd have a lot more death. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, actually, not having sex, actually, dead, that's it, gone. <laughs> actually, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that, that the sexual content started is that people kept telling me that. Is that why she doesn't have sex? Because in horror movies, the, she has sex, you know, the bad thing happens. So and I like, just said, screw it, it I'll give sex a thousand times. There you go. Well, I didn't really plan it like that. No, but, but I mean, it, it did, I gotcha. It did, yeah. it did make me go, no, that's not it. That's right. not it at all. Breaking that um, rule. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's been interesting. It's been, it's been an interesting uh, thing to, to watch it. But um, one of the, um, at one time, a uh, very important editor, mystery editor at the time when the, I think, I don't think I had reached, I, I wasn't in double digits with Anita yet. And uh, she came up to me at a convention because I, I went to BoucherCon as well as some of the science fiction cons. And um, she came up to me and she said how much she loved my books and I was very flattered. And then she said, and if, if you were a straight mystery, if there was no monsters, she says you couldn't possibly do the level of violence or even sexual content that you do. And I said, really, still? And she says, no, is a woman, is a woman writing a first-person female detective, I would still, if I was writing straight mystery, not be allowed to do the violence and the sexual content because, and specifically because I'm female. Hmm. Interesting. If you go read mysteries, if you go read even hard-boiled mysteries, the women still are not allowed the level of violence that the male detectives and the male writers are. I guess I just never thought of it, but I guess when you kind of look down and start seeing the research, then you probably start seeing those patterns, and I think that that's a shame. Um, she, she, and, and, and she just yeah. flat out said that she was told that, yeah, she, was told that she couldn't buy that, that that's just not. Yeah. She says, I'm so glad that, that you had horror elements because otherwise it would never have made it. Horror does free you up because people think, as you said, that there are no rules or right. there are... Uh, loose rules. Like there are loose rules. Much. Yeah. Um, and and um, the biggest rule I broke of genre is a rule I didn't know existed. I, I'm not a big romance reader. I do not read, I, I've never been a big romance reader, and I did not understand that I was writing a romantic theme at all. I thought I was writing a mystery and with horror elements or a horror with mystery elements. How do you want to look at it? And but because of the relationship arc, the romance readers thought of it as a romance. And I did not know there was a rule until people told me there was a rule, and I'd already broken it. And what is that rule? Here's the no rule. Idea. The rule is that you have the bad boy who is, who is usually very bad, and then you have the good guy. And you can, be, you, can have, you can have relations, you can date both of them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but eventually you choose the good guy 
and you marry him, and you ride off into monog- that monogamous sunset. That's the romance rule. Now, since I broke that rule, that rule has expanded. Uh, you know, and you're all welcome. Thank you. But, um, <laughs> but that was the rule. And that was one of the reasons everybody was so upset when Anita and Richard didn't work out. Sorry if you, you're new to my series. I didn't want that to be a spoiler, but I keep forgetting. Um, it's 27 because, books in, man. If they ain't into it yet, I don't know where the hell they've been. Uh, you know, it is hard. It is hard. I mean, it's 27 books in. You gotta. Uh, you, yeah. you, you can't have right, everything to the fair. best. Yeah. That, that's that's fair. So so that is one of the reasons that so many Richard fans were upset because I broke the rule, and it took me years to figure out there was a rule that I'd broken because I didn't know why everybody was so upset. I was going, "What are you talking about? What?" There is an unspoken rule, and it was hard and fast in romance at the time that I broke it, that you don't go with the bad boy, and they saw Jean-Claude as the bad boy. So, you know, you don't. And then they made peace with me going with Jean-Claude, but they thought that he would be my one and only, that eventually, among all of her suitors, that Anita would pick just one. Right. And when I, and, and I still get people thinking she's going to pick just one. And I'm going, no, that's not how polyamory works. That's not how any of this polyamory works. That's not what it means. So it's, it's been interesting that I've broken more romance rules than any other genre that I write in because I didn't know they existed. Well, you know what, uh, Laurel, this is what I say. I tell them, you're the author. It's your story. It's your creation. Fuck the rules. There are no rules. You make the rules because it's yours. It's your story. You do what you want to do. That's what makes it great, and that's why people love you. And that's why your books are so good. You know why? Because when you pick it up, the whole idea is, what the hell has Laurel done for me now? It's not going to be the this rule, that rule, this way, this way, because to me that's boring. I want to pick it up, and I want to know, no, what journey is she going <laughs> to step me on that I'm going to be excited about? That's what I want to exactly. know. Exactly. That's what I want to know. And that's how I feel too, because as exactly. a, I, I have I have the mystery plotted out. I have yeah. I have the main thing, but for the stuff in between, especially for the character interactions, I know who's going to be there, but I don't know what's going to happen. So I write, so I can yeah. read it too. Right, and not, every, and, and not everything and happens it, the way that it's supposed to happen. Isn't that life? Bo- isn't that boring life if it comes the way that you want it to happen? I used to scream at these Star Wars fans, saying, "That's not how Luke would die. He wouldn't die that way." And I'm like, "How the hell do you know how Luke was going to die?" <laughs> like, stop. <laughs> like, I'm just, no. and I would sit there and I would just be like, "If it happened the way that you wanted it to, a hundred percent, isn't that boring? Because then you already worked it out in your head, and there's no suspense and there's no surprise." There's nothing more there to than keep that. More than that, you can't satisfy everyone. Exactly. You you can't satisfy everyone, and that is one of the things that I I learned over the years is that is that just just as many people are happy with the fact that I broke the rules, and in fact more than the people who are unhappy. And you cannot please everybody. You cannot right. please everybody. So in the end, you have to please yourself. You have to make sure that you, as the writer, are always interested and that the characters are happy. I mean, I'll throw out an entire plot if my characters come up with a better idea. And I've done it. I've done it multiple times. Um, 
And if I bring on a character to be a villain and he turns out to be a good guy, then he's alive, and that's magic, and I don't squash my own magic. No. And if no. I bring somebody out, I mean, if I bring somebody out to be uh, to be a good guy and they turn out to be a villain, I go, well, that was a surprise, but I don't fight them on it. Right. It's, if they're alive enough to argue with you, your characters are alive enough, and it is magic, and you shouldn't fight your own muse. Um, The care and feeding of your muse as a writer is a very tricky thing. And your creativity and your ideas and everything, they are are fragile if you bully them. And you, at least that's how I feel. I know other writers that that write outlines almost as long as the book. And by the time I finished that outline, I'd be done. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 would, I, I wouldn't write a book. I would right. be written out having done an outline that detailed. Done that. But and then I, you have to go back and actually write the book. But the people who do the de- de- detailed outlines, they stick oh. to it. They do. Um, That's true. And I'm not that kind of writer. I'm just, I'm just not. Never have been. I'm, I'm a character-driven and a world-building writer. I'm not a plot. Yeah. plot. I'm, not, I'm not chained to my plot. Um, I mean, I think some authors just stick to that old school that they were taught in English class, write the outline first and show it to me, <sighs> then I'll prove it, and then you can go ahead and write the story. And I think that they just kind of that was they just kind of got into that routine and they just kind of stuck with it. I think. I think that kills more writers than anything to try yeah. that mentality that there's only one way to do it. Right. Uh, what whatever works for you, if uh, you know if if writing in green ink. Or editing in green ink makes you feel less inhibited than using red ink, then do, do that. If if you know uh, you know, and if it, if you can only work in it rain, then move to Ireland. But you know, find out what works for you and embrace it as much as you can. Um, and the biggest thing is that you the internet is amazing. I love the connection that you have. But it's also changed completely how the dynamics of writers, publishers, editors interact with the public. Back when I started, back in, I mean, in the late 80s, back when I started, there was really no Internet. Nope. And uh, if you had to write in, if you wanted to complain or praise a book and an author, you had to write a real letter, mail it to their, their editor, or if you did enough research, their agent, and then their agent or editor would look at it, see if they needed to send it to you or not, and you, you had a gatekeeper that wasn't the writer. I am the one that's on Twitter. It's not my editor. It's not somebody else. It's me. And so, so when somebody wants to say something mean, I'm right there taking it, taking it firsthand, and there's no editor protecting you. There's no somebody else to soften the blow kind of thing. Right. Um, I have a media person that handles Facebook. I will get on occasionally, but they handle my Facebook, they handle Instagram. But then part of that is that uh, I, I, I got somebody who, who is, you know, in their 30s to do it because I didn't grow up with this. I, yeah, I want smart. somebody who understands it even better than I do. Now, I love my iPhone. I'll just admit that. And I have never written a book. I'm, I've never written a book that wasn't on a word processor or a computer. My first novel was written on one. But I, 
still do not have that same smoothness and familiarity with all of it. I, I just don't because I didn't grow up with it. And, but, but there is nobody, and one of the reasons I got somebody is because there's no gatekeeper. I cannot be the person that reads all the stuff. If I read everybody's comments, good or bad, it takes energy away from my writing. That's what I found. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few years ago, I used to take the negative to heart, really to mm-hmm. heart. I've gotten better at that. You talked about I that really, last interview, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but for young writers especially, for new people starting out, I really think that on one hand, the energy and the immediate feedback, if it's positive, that can buoy you up. But I think that the negative can crush you. And sometimes the people telling you you're great are not right. So you get in this loop of praise that may not be good for your writing, and then you can come up and somebody can say something negative to you, and it can crush you in a way that some brilliant, you know, a brilliant book could never see the light of day because somebody was mean. And, and it used to be that a writer could be in their ivory tower, that you, because your editor and your agent were your gatekeepers. And now the writers are online. We're out there, and you can get directly to them. And I, I, I used to think that you want to be in the world, not of the world. You want to be in. How much? How much do? How much privacy do you need? How much isolation? How much ivory tower do you need to be right. able to write and create? And I've decided that I need more. I need more than I thought I did. And um, uh, it and it's okay. It's okay to not know the latest headlines. Yeah. It's okay to go into your office and say, this is my sanctuary and I'm not getting online while I'm writing. This time is free of that. Um, right. because well, something, too- something pretty funny. We were, we, were, we, were, we were able to go to Dean Koontz's house and interview him. And in his office, he still has a word processing kind of computer with zero Internet in his office. He will not allow the Internet, Wi-Fi, nothing in his office so he does not get disturbed. He doesn't. Have, he has no um, internet office. I think that's really. I think that's really yeah. great. What I because he do said otherwise, he would be on YouTube watching cat videos, and he would never write. So <laughs> <laughs> he goes. It, it, he goes. It, he it, would, and it's true. You get caught up in that, and you get caught up in that hole, and then you just start feeling like Alice down the rabbit hole, and you just never leave. Um, I have my main computer is connected to the internet, but I pretend that it is not. Everything is disabled. Uh, there's no, no, nothing notifies me that anything is happening on it. Um, and though I can do a search, I just pretend it isn't there. You just pretend Um, it isn't there. I pretend it isn't there. If I, if I, um, I have an iPad that with a a full size key ergonomic keyboard that is, uh, Bluetooth that I use and I use that because I can move from desk to desk or, you know, before everything, you know, went down the rabbit hole. Uh, you know, you could go out to a cafe or whatever. And that, of course, because it's Bluetooth, it has to be connected, you know. Yeah. But, but I find that if I need to look something up, I never, ever, 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 ever do it on the computer. I will get up, I will go to my phone, which is across the room from me. <laughs> and, it's kind of like and, putting your alarm on the other side of the room, so you have to get up and get it. 
It is because because yeah. I need to make sure that whatever I'm about to look up is worth getting up for my writing and crossing the room to it. And if it is not worth that, then don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, you know, and that's a great. Uh, and I think that that's something great for young authors to kind of understand and to try to, you know, they need to kind of find their own way and their own writing. But I, I do, I agree that they kind of need to. You know, sometimes it, they, they just need to get into that rhythm. You just got to get into that rhythm. And I think that's the big thing to kind of get that stuff out. So thank you so and, much. And, hey. Well, yeah. You're welcome. Yes. And you know what? We, and this has been an amazing interview, I just got to tell you. Just love talking to you. I know we went way over, but I really don't give a shit. Um, hopefully you don't give a shit because I know hopefully you have a lot of fun. It's, it's been great. It's been a blast. Yeah. But I just want to remind everybody again that the book is called Sucker Punch. The book will be out August the 4th. Uh, you can find whatever format you want to buy it in, of course. It's available then. Uh, so your website, Laurel, laurelkhamilton.com, is the best place yep. for everyone to find out all your, your stuff, right? That's, that's the, that's the uh, gatekeeper. It, it, is, it, is, it is one of the best places. Um, and um, I, I will just go ahead after having just talked about it. I'm still going to go ahead and go. Um, on Twitter, I'm LK Hamilton, and uh, mm-hmm. hang on, on Instagram, what am I? On Instagram, uh, you are, oh, I, am on, a, I, I am official, <laughs> official underscore LK Hamilton, underscore LK Hamilton yeah. uh, on Instagram, and I think I'm just me on Facebook. Like yeah, you're, no, you're okay. Laurel K. Hamilton official. So if people go to your website, you have all of the links up there that people can click and go right to your social yeah. media, which is good too. Yeah. Yes, and uh, so yes, my, my website, you know, should have everything. I and and on my list of things to do, my copious spare time uh, is uh, you know doing a redo of the of the website, and I'm going because things have changed. Yeah. Uh, when I First put my website together, you know, it was mostly about blogs and the website was more of a central hub. And now, you know, you have the links to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And, and it's, it's interesting how many people stay on one platform and don't like to get off that platform because they like it. Right. So, I'm, and I'm actually, I used to do a newsletter. I, I am hearing, because so many people are overwhelmed with the news online, and they're trying to get offline. In fact, the sales of physical books have gone up because people just want something that they cannot be tempted to look at the headlines on. Yeah, um, I'm actually thinking about reviving the idea of a newsletter, starting with like an email newsletter and then maybe offering people a chance to uh, get a, an actual newsletter, like, like an old-fashioned in-the-mail newsletter. Wow, that would be interesting. I know yeah, Dean still I, does something. I know, I know, and I actually know Dean Coons actually still does something like that. I think he still sends one out like every quarter, like twice or so a year, I think. Get him. But because so many people are just overwhelmed with how much news yeah. is in the feed and everything, I'm thinking about offering to the fans a chance to, to not, to, to be able to get it off or on. And uh, I don't know. I'm talking. I'm. I'm I, my husband has just said, "Please don't make more work for you." <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and 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 I say, "Well, you know." And he says, "Please, please don't make more work 
Because you know, um, I am signing. I'm signing uh, several pallets. Uh, you know, like like shipping, shipping oh. pallets like of of Sucker Punch, and then we're uh, the the people who are getting signed copies at uh, Look Face Books and Burger by the Book uh, is getting signed copies of the uh, graphic novel First Death that my husband and I co-wrote, which is a prequel to Guilty Pleasures. It's the oh. case where Edward finally where he almost burned the house down around them with the flamethrower, oh. and. Um, my so wife doesn't read comics, but she might. She would read that one. It's it. It was a way of being able to do a prequel in a novel. I would have to go too far into her mindset about where yeah. she's not anymore. But a comic is like a movie script. I can yep. th- you can do the dialogue. You don't have to go as intensely into the first person character thinking. Sure. And so I can do prequels that way. Um, so so lots of signing, but I'm also almost near the end of a. Uh, 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 of other of another book, and so it's awesome. like I, I so I'm finishing up another book. I'm signing all this stuff. The new books have come out, and he says, "Please don't give yourself a new thing to do." <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes, dear. Yes, okay. Dear. So, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna side with your husband on this one. All right. So <laughs> let's side with the husband on this one. Well, Laurel, hey, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolutely fabulous time. Always a fabulous time to thank talk you. to you. Again, I want to thank you so much. Uh, and again, Sucker Punch, everybody, August 4th. So, Laurel, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a blast. Take care. Oh, Stay healthy, you. please. Oh, you too. Stay safe. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.